Well, I'm glad some of you stayed to hear me this morning. <clears throat> For those of you who are new or, or don't know me, my name is Doug Swenson. I'm one of the elders here, and I get this opportunity once in a rare, rare occasion to sub up here. So welcome this morning as we look into God's Word. David begins the Psalms with these words, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. We're going to look at those three postures this morning, sitting, walking, and standing. But we're going to look at them through the lens of Paul and his writing in the book of Ephesians. You probably remember that Ephesians is one of those books that's easily divisible. The first three chapters are filled with some great doctrinal statements, just magnificent statements about who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. And the last three chapters, four through six, are more of the practical outworking of who we are as believers in how we should live our daily lives. And so we're going to essentially do an overview of the book of Ephesians this morning using those three words, sit, walk, and stand, and look at how Paul deals with them. So we're going to start out in Ephesians chapter 1 with verse 15. We're going to read through verse 7 of chapter 2. That'll be our foundation, if you will, as we begin this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we know that your word is living and active. So we ask that your spirit would move in our hearts this morning. And that, as we're going to read in a moment here, that we could ask that our hearts would be enlightened by what you have for us, that you would teach us and speak to us, that your spirit would fill us, that we would understand a little bit more about who you are today, that we would live as people of the King. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, 
and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the question this morning is, first of all, where are you sitting? And the easy, obvious answer is, well, of course. That's a stupid question, Doug. I'm sitting in a chair in the gym in Peace of Mind Academy. And that's the very thing that our physical eyes perceive. That's what we recognize. That's what we know. But what about our spiritual eyes. Can we grasp something with them that the fact that this morning, if you are a believer, if God has redeemed you, if you are trusting in him for salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins, you actually are seated with him in the heavenly places this morning. Well, that's a truth that is beyond description. In Ephesians here, we read a couple of times that talked about the immeasurable grace that God has for us. And this is one of those things that's indescribable. We could call it amazing or awesome, and that really doesn't fit the description of where we are. So, If we're there, if you're a believer this morning and you are seated with Christ, how did we get there? And what does that mean for us? Well, the fact that we read here that Christ is seated next to the Father is repeated over and over again in scriptures. It's not something new that Paul came up with here. In fact, in the Psalms, it's prophesied to us in Psalm 110, Verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you remember, that's the verse that Jesus confounded the Pharisees with. They didn't understand what he was talking about when he quoted that verse to them about himself. And he said in another place about himself, when he was on trial before Caiaphas, 
He said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And on that occasion, that was enough for them to tear their clothes and and accuse him of blasphemy. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, Christ died, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He repeats the same thing in Colossians. And in Hebrews, it's mentioned four times that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So it's not something that Paul just pulled out of thin air here in writing to the Ephesians. It's a truth that we read elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father because of what he did on the cross. Because you and I as believers are in Christ, we also have been made to sit with him in the heavenly places. If you look at verse 4 in chapter 2 again, it says there, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul emphasizes that last phrase repeatedly in his writings. In Christ Jesus. In Romans, he talks about that as our being united with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. In Colossians, he talks about it as we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ. In fact, in the beginning of chapter 1 in Ephesians here that we didn't read, that phrase, in him, is used several times to indicate that that is our position. That is our identity as believers. So, how did we get into Christ in order that we can be seated with him in the heavenly places? Well, actually, we didn't get in to Christ. There's nothing that we did to place ourselves in him. Really, that's good news for us because there isn't anything that we could do or can do to try to get into Christ. In fact, as believers, we are already in him. What we could not do, God did for us. He put us into Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, By his doing, that's by God, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Or some translations put it, of him, of God, you are in Christ. Praise God for that. We don't have to figure out a way to get into Christ Jesus. God's performed it. He's accomplished it. It's a divine act that we can't do ourselves. Let me try to 
illustrate that. If I can find what I put into my Bible this morning. Yep. I've got a $100 bill here. <clears throat> I don't see these very often. So <clears throat> let this represent you and I as believers this morning. All right? My Bible, this book, I'm going to place the $100 bill in the Bible. Let's pretend the Bible, this book, is Jesus Christ. The bill is in the book, all right? Everywhere this book goes, the bill goes. If I forget my Bible here this morning and go home, the bill is still in the Bible. If I take my Bible home, put it on my desk, that's where the bill goes. If I mail something this week to my brother-in-law in California and absent-mindedly stick my Bible in the FedEx envelope, the bill goes to my brother-in-law. Right? There's a union here. The bill is one with my book. And as with all analogies, pretty quickly we run out of the reality of the whole thing. <clears throat> but if you can picture this, we are in Christ Jesus. We have been made part of him. And the Bible talks about that as in the past tense. Not right now, but we have been put into Christ. And so what happened to Jesus on the cross happened to us. We were crucified with him. What happened to Jesus when he was buried happened to us. We were buried with him. When he rose from the dead, we were included in that. We rose to a new life in Jesus Christ. Our world is going to sit in a chair and scoff at something like that. Right? They're going to say, I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't feel it. That's ridiculous. Right? David tells us, don't sit in the chair of the scoffer. This is what God's word has told us. <clears throat> so what does it mean to be seated then? If we are in Christ Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places, what does it mean to be seated? Well, for one thing, that posture means an attitude of rest. If you think about when you're out in your yard maybe doing some work and you get tired out, you come in, you sit down, you rest. Right? Or it means you stopped from your labor. Okay? And it's the same in the spiritual realm. We stop from our labor and rest from what we've done. We rest in the fact that Jesus is our Savior and what he has done. In fact, it's been that way from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, it tells us, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, 
because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God worked, and then he rested. Now think about Adam for a second. Adam was just the opposite. Adam was created on the sixth day, so the seventh day was Adam's first full day of life. That was the day of rest. And so Adam's first day was a day of rest, and then he went to work. And in a similar way, it's the same for us. We need to be people that are resting in God before we go to work. Of course, after that, sin came into the world, and Jesus had to come. He came and completed that work of redemption that we do nothing to earn or to merit. We simply enter into that finished work of Christ by faith and see ourselves as seated in him in the heavenly places. In fact, that's Paul's prayer that I mentioned earlier. In chapter 1, verse 18, he, he just simply asks, praying for the Ephesians, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope of your calling to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We need that work in our heart because it's a supernatural work. It's not something that we can do on our own. God gives us that position of rest in his son's finished work. That's how we begin our Christian life, by resting in his work. That's how we continue in our Christian life. As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. That's how we proceed with him. Every new experience, new step of growth that we have with God begins with a new having been made to sit with him, if you will, a new recognition of where we are. Otherwise, we enter into that second posture of walking, trying to do it on our own, trying to do it in our own strength and not his. We have a continual need to have the eyes of our heart enlightened to the reality of our identity and our position in Christ Jesus. So, we have been made to sit with him. But sitting with him always is followed by walking. We never can stay there. This is not a call to sit back in your lounge chair and just fiddle your life away, right? Always, always, our sitting with Christ is followed by walking. That walking is just simply the practical outworking of our position in Jesus. It describes our conduct before men, our behavior, how we order our behavior 
before people. That's what chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians really talks about. It's the challenge to us for our relationships. Our relationships with our neighbors, husband and wife, parents and children, employee-employer relationships. And it's because we bear that image of the heavenly that we need to bring that heavenliness, if you will, into our experience right here and now, into our homes, into our places of work, into our neighborhoods. If you look at chapter 4 in Ephesians, how that begins, we'll look just quickly at chapter 4 and 5 here, how they begin. Look at the first two verses in chapter 4. I, therefore... Because of everything that's been previous to this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Jump over to chapter 5, verse 2. It starts out, Therefore, because of everything previous to this, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do we do that in all of our relationships? How do we walk in love? How do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? Well, let me just pick out one aspect of that this morning. Ever since sin came into the world, when Adam and Eve picked the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we humans have acquired that capacity to know good and evil. And we've learned really, really well how to differentiate between right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice, and in particular, when that wrong or evil and injustice has been done to us. We pick up really, really quickly when we've been wronged, don't we? We recognize that immediately, even if it's imagined on our part. You know what that feeling's like when someone disrespects you, says something against you, and you get that rising tide of anger, red-bloodedness that rises up inside of you, and you want to say something back. You want to retaliate. You want to teach them a lesson. You want justice to be done, don't you? <clears throat> you, are, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? When that creeps up inside of us. Or when you read about somebody that's been mistreated in a news account. You want to do something to right that wrong. We have that urgent sense of right and wrong within us. So what do we do with that? 
How do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling when we get into those situations? When the blood is rising up and your face is all red and you're ready to do something about it. Well, let me illustrate with two stories. One's from about 100 years ago in China and the other's from the Old Testament. About 100 years ago in China, a Christian farmer had a rice field on a hillside that he watered with a treadmill from the stream at the bottom of the hill. You can imagine how much work that was every day, pumping water up a hill to water his rice field. One night, his neighbor, who had a field below his, made a hole in the terrace so that the water drained down into his field. The next day, the Christian discovered that, repaired the hole in the terrace, and laboriously pumped water back up into his field. That night, the neighbor did the same thing. And this went on for three or four nights. So the farmer went to his fellow believers. Maybe we could say he went to his life group and asked them what to do. He said, I've tried to be patient not to retaliate. But this is just not right. How often have you said that phrase or heard it or felt it, thought it? This is not, this is just not right. After they had prayed, one of his fellow believers said this, if only we try to do the right thing, surely We are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. Let me say that again. If only we try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. So the farmer went out, pumped water into his neighbor's field in the morning and into his own field in the afternoon. And, of course, his neighbor wondered what in the world was going on here, inquired the reason for his actions, and in due course, he became a believer also. Another story in Genesis chapter 26. And as it turns out, both of these are about water. So... Chapter 26 of Genesis is the account of Isaac living in the land of Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And there was a famine in the land at the time, and God told Isaac not to go down to Egypt like his father Abraham had done. So let's pick up in verse 12 here. We'll read a little bit of this account. Isaac sowed in, the la- in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. The man became rich, gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds, many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us. For you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar. 
and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water's ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, which means contention, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna, which means enmity. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Think of that situation there. Isaac's servants had gone to all this work to redig the wells that Abraham had dug previously. It was they were their their wells. But the Philistines had filled them up with dirt. Right? I don't know if any of you when you went to Honduras dug a well by hand. I don't think you did. But digging a well by hand is not very easy to do. I've never done it, and I don't think I want to try. But it's a lot of work. And so think about what Isaac's servants would have felt like when the people in the neighborhood said, no, that's not your well, that's ours. And if I were one of the servants, I would have said, no way, Jose, I just got done digging the well, it's mine. You go dig your own well. But Isaac doesn't do that. He moves on, and they dig another well. And the same thing happens. Isaac picks up, and they go dig another well. Now, this is not a call to be a doormat and to lay down and let everybody walk over you. But there are times in our lives, in our walk with the Lord, where we simply need to do more than the right thing. We simply need to go dig another well. We simply need to be patient with all humility. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. This is not something you need to do in every circumstance in your life, but we need to understand what God wants us to do here in certain circumstances, that he wants us to walk in a manner worthy of him. Now think about it. Jesus was, of course, the most obviously mistreated, unjustly mistreated person that we can think of. Nobody else, none of us, are ever going to be mistreated the way that Jesus was. No remark that anybody makes to us, nothing that anybody takes away from us, nothing that anybody does to us is going to approach the unjustness of what Jesus suffered for us. 
fact, Hebrews chapter 12 begins with this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're talking about walking here in a manner worthy of the Lord, but we've come back to being seated with him again. Just one further thought here on walking, what that means. It not only involves our conduct or our behavior before others, but when we talk about walking, there's a sense of progress, a sense of getting somewhere in our walk. Look with me in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 15. It says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There's a connection here between time and the difference between being wise and foolish. Now, God's will for us is to bring all of his children into maturity. And he's going to do that someday. He's promised that. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He'll bring that to completion someday. We believe that. We believe that. We're sure of that. But consider this. Is it at all possible that there is some privilege of serving Jesus which we may miss by being unprepared, by not being wise with the use of our time? Think of the parable that Jesus gives about the ten virgins, five of them being wise, five of them being foolish. They were all being obedient. They're all waiting for the bridegroom to come. They all had lamps that were burning. They were all doing what they were supposed to be doing. In fact, they all fell asleep even while they were waiting. They were all in the same situation. The only difference is the wise virgins had prepared beforehand to bring extra oil, and the five foolish ones had not. When that crisis came, or maybe you could say that moment of truth, when the bridegroom came, The wise ones were ready, but the foolish ones missed the opportunity for which the oil was intended. They lost out on that opportunity. So today, for you and I, how are we making the best use of our time? Or as some translations put, 
verse 16, redeeming the time. Are you and I redeeming our time? We fill our lives with all kinds of good things. And sometimes we miss out on the best that God has for us. That's an easy temptation to fall into. Remember the story about Mary and Martha when Jesus came to their house. and Martha was so busy getting things ready for the meal. She was distraught because Mary wasn't helping her do the good things that were necessary. The things that had to be done for the meal preparation. And Jesus said, Mary has chosen the best part. She's sitting at my feet listening to me. We come around again to that idea about sitting with Jesus. We need to be seated with Jesus so that we can walk before men in a way that pleases him. And our third posture here of standing, we need to be seated with Jesus so that we can stand against the evil one. Paul talks about that in chapter 6. He talks about that armor of God, beginning in verse 10 there. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Paul tells us simply that we're to stand. He gives us the the picture here. We're standing against those things that we cannot see in the heavenly places. We typically think we're standing against evil governments or evil people, sinners, a world system that is working against us. That's simply what we see. But they are not our enemy. There's two kingdoms that are fighting each other here, two kingdoms that are at war, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, who's trying to usurp that authority from God. We have been seated with God in the heavenly places, and we're learning to walk before men in a way that pleases him, but how do we deal with the enemy of our souls here? Simply to put on the armor and to stand against him. I'm sure you've heard that phrase or that idea that this armor is primarily defensive armor. And part of the reason for that is that simply... When we're told to stand against something, that's a defensive posture. We're to hold 
our ground. We're not needed to go out and struggle and attack. We don't need to march somewhere to invade some new territory. We're to hold the ground that has already been won by the finished work of Christ. Jesus has done all the offensive work that needs to be done. He has already defeated the enemy. And we're called to simply hold that ground that he has won. Jesus has given us his victory to hold. So today, in that fight that we are in, and we are in a fight, there's no getting around that, Jesus has called us to fight from a position of victory rather than fighting for a victory that he has already won. Right now, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, this is not a call to inactivity or slothfulness or laziness. Right? Paul tells us in Colossians 1.29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's struggling. He's toiling. But he's doing that with all of God's energy that God is working within him. I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider how much energy God has. How much energy did it take to speak the worlds into existence? How much energy did God expend in creating the sun or all the other billions of suns that are in our universe, many of which are many times bigger than our own sun? We talk about the sun having an energy and it heats us, it grows our earth, our plants. How much energy did God expend in creating all that we see? How much energy did he expend in raising Jesus from the dead? How much energy does God have? Of course... God, when in creation, when he rested, he didn't have to rest like we do. God didn't run out of energy in creation, so he rested. He rested for our sake. God's energy is infinite. It is limitless. And so when Paul says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me, God is at work in each of us, powerfully working that same energy that raised Christ from the dead in each of us. Sitting, walking, standing, it's all about God 
and what he has done in Jesus Christ. It all begins with him, being in him, seated at the right hand of the Father. And our world, our society, our neighbors, our friends, co-workers, they can easily scoff at those kind of words. My co-worker, my co-leader at BSF is a scientist. And he told the, our kids a couple weeks ago, he said, I've been trained as a scientist not to trust anything that I can't see or I can't measure. It simply is not existing in my world. He said, God had to open my eyes to see what I cannot see in what he has done for me. So we can't ignore what we can't see or what we can't measure. And the counsel of this world says to stick up for your own rights. Stand up for what, who you are. Get as much as you can, even if it means running over somebody else. And the path of sinners says, come along with us. It'll be fun. We can do this all together. We're all in this together. We'll share everything. What we're going to do is not going to hurt anybody. Proverbs 10.23 says, Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. So Paul tells us in Ephesians, he calls us out from this world system to recognize our identity in Christ, having been made to sit with him, from which we live out our life in this world. We're never going to be able to dig another well unless we know where we're seated in Jesus Christ. The one who does the work is the one who gets all the praise and glory. And since God's not going to give his glory to anyone else, he must be the one that does all the work in and through us. We need to simply give him thanks for doing that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the one who has accomplished your work for us. You're the one who has come to redeem us. You're the one who has come to work in us and for us. You're the one who has come to purchase our salvation. You're the one who has come to give us life, eternal life. Father, we just simply ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may see anew what you have done, to see anew who you are, to see anew the glories of what it means to be seated with you in the heavenly places, to know again the assuredness of who we are in Jesus Christ as one of your children. We thank you, we praise you, we give you glory for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.